Um, I chose Margaret for, I, cho I chose her story for two reasons. Number one, Leonard Ravenhill recommended this book called Fair Sunshine uh, during one of his interviews, and so I bought it. And it is an incredible read. I would highly recommend it. I brought a copy if anyone wants it. Um, but he, he writes it, uh, he reads this book, and he shares it in this interview, and it is a book about Scottish martyrs during the, the killing time, is what they called it. It was between the 15 and 1600s, where history tells us that about 18,000 recorded Christians were murdered. Um, hence why they called it the killing time. Uh, these deaths were not shy of brutality and barbaric tactics at all. Every martyr was, very, uh, was more creative in severity than the last. I chose Margaret for a second reason. Uh, to, de to demonstrate and provide an example of someone who only lived to the age of 18 years old. I mean, I did that because some of us here are older than 18, or some of us are 18, and I wanted to give you someone extremely young due to this series containing stories about old dead guys, right? Like we think about it, and it's from a long time ago, and they were older than us, you know, like we think of, and it's too easy for me um, to detach myself to them. And, and in that detaching myself, and even through, even though we verbally uh, talk about and express our similarities with them, it still feels like there's some distance there. Yeah. You could be like me when we talk about Francis Xavier or Hudson Taylor in the past couple weeks, and, and there's still a separation. There's a difference of age, and, and due to that age gap, we immediately fill in the blank with, oh, it's, well, it's education. Well, it's wisdom. Well, they had, they had different opportunities. They lived longer. They saw different things, and, and the list goes on and on. But this is untrue. I will tell you the story of Margaret's short life, as she is not the only young martyr for Christ. Margaret Wilson, she was born in 1667. And, uh, and at this time, England and Scotland, uh, they broke the Catholicism decree. And so this might sound like a, a history lesson. I'm going to try to not do that, um, because there's a story here in her life. And um, so during this time, King Charles, you know, he... he he tried to make the church a thing that he owned, right? Like, so it became a, uh, a department of the state. And so he declared, and he quotes, and I quote him, and he says, the only supreme head on earth of the Church of England is himself. And that didn't sit well with everyone, right? You know, it doesn't even sit well with us. And so, so on the other hand, this created a, a reformation in Scotland, and this was led by a man named John Knox. And so he was one who challenged the monarchy uh, with different thoughts, and uh, he actually, I mean, he, he says, uh, and straight up challenged the king, and says that he declares that the only head of the church was Jesus Christ himself, and come alone. So this didn't sit right with people. And um, eventually through this, there was conflict for a couple of years through this, but eventually Scotland was forced and pressured to reform under the Church of England, and to swear an oath to the king's health. And so, during this time, a rebellious group formed known as the Covenanters. So that sounds really cool, right? Um, and they were just people of the Covenant, is what they called themselves. Um, in this group of outlaws was Margaret Wilson, at age 18 years old, her brother Thomas at 16, and little sister Agnes at 13. And there was more and more people starting to grow with this. Their family and, and their household was, was a good household. Their parents were believers, and, and it was a holy house. Um, but in the sake of their safety for their children, their parents knelt and swore the oath. 
And the kids refused um, to do that. And so in refusing, they're choosing to suffer rather than surrendering their doctrine and the, of you know, what they believe in, of what they believe scripture says on who the king is. And so uh, the, the three spent many months running and hiding. They had routine. They, they hid in caves in the hillsides. And they would always run. So they'd have secret meetings. They'd have uh, these like worship sessions or these speakers. Or even once they had John Knox come. And so there's many times that this movement just exploding. And, and it grew. And they had, they had methods and ways that they would hide. They'd have someone be scouting from the hilltops. Looking to see if there's any troops coming by. And so... They had this routine, and things were great. Uh, one cloudy day, though, in February, while Thomas, the youngest one, 16 years old, was sent off to war, uh, Margaret and Agnes ran towards the caves after being um, tipped off by someone who was spying on them while they were ha having a, a hidden woman's worship meeting. And so someone found out, and they told. And so they, uh, they routinely ran and hid. You know, they had their, their strategy of how they would do this. And they routinely ran and hid. And, um, but this time, the king had had enough. So he sent a hundred soldiers to take camp and to, um, to stay on their farmland. And so the guards quartered there, and then and they, you know, there was a pressure on their mother for the sake of the two girls returning back. And the girls ran for weeks and weeks. And this was in January. It's super cold there. The, the story says, like, you know, it gives us examples of how they, you know, kept warm and stuff like that, but um, they were just hiding out until they heard that, uh, that King Charles was announced dead. And there was some sort of excitement there, some sort of comfort and safety of being able to leave because there's a new king, King James II, and, and in this the girls thought it would be safe to leave their hiding places. So they, they went down uh, to this place called Wigtown, no, I'm not accepting to find this, <laughs> their, their old friend, uh, she was a widow, her name was also Mark. Uh, Margaret McLaughlin is how you say it. And she was 70 years old. She's uh, one of their friends is the Covenanters. And they were they were supposed to meet her that night. Well, and then they invited another Margaret, Margaret Maxwell. There's a lot of Margaret's, right? So they invited Margaret Maxwell, who was just there to just hang out with them and stuff. And so they knew each other from this group and they knew that. And they met. And one of their neighbors decides to alert the police that they were meeting. And so to trick them, the man went over and he offered uh, to cook them a meal, and to, and then in this he offered to make a toast to the king. And he kind of got them a little tricked, and they verbally said, I will not you know, say these sinful things. Um, and basically, uh, they did not make the toast of adjuration to the king. So in this they were taken and they were imprisoned. And they were set to be flogged for three days, stalked for three nights, and then sentenced to death. Margaret Wilson, Margaret McLaughlin, Agnes, and their other friend, Margaret Maxwell, uh, who was also there that night, were given unique death sentences. Margaret Maxwell had a lighter load. In her days of brutal torture and herself being exposed to the townspeople, she stayed faithful unto death. She proclaimed this, and um, the executioner and the guards, they, I, they luckily, and, and by the grace of God, they were moved by this, and they spared her life. Agnes, of 13 years old, was to share the same sentence as her sister. 
flogged and stalked for three days until their execution. But their father managed to scavenge a hundred pounds. And, he, and each of their bales were a hundred pounds, so he could only afford one. And so he chose Agnes, the youngest, in hopes to manage to come back and to collect more money and come back for Margaret. But um, history tells us that that was too late. So these two ladies of the covenant, Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin, were wrestling in their cool, heavy swellings of the Jordan. Margaret of flaxen hair and Margaret of the gray. Two long wooden stakes had been fixed deeply in the bed of the, the shore. They placed Mother Margaret, um, the older one, uh, closer to further out um, so that the younger Margaret could watch. Uh, we don't know much about the old saying or what she said, but people will um, assume, and, and it appears that sick at heart and disappointment, disappointed with madly cruel humanity, she turned to the unending communion with the Lord. In this, as she died, the guards rudely cried, let the old damned hag go to hell. And they tied her roughly, fast to her leafless but fruitful tree. Uh, the guards turned to the young Margaret and they asked her, what do you think of her now? And Margaret replied, think, I see Christ wrestling there. She says, think ye that we are sufferers? No, it is Christ in us. For he sends none of warfare at their own charges. And the young heart communed with the Most High. She sang, and she sang as the waters came closer and closer, up to her neck and, and, and close and, um, and near to her lips. She recites Psalms 25 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in this way. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them in his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. The guards pulled her up and gave her one last chance to speak and to use her last breath to swear the oath. They raised her stake. And she spoke. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which Christ Jesus our Lord. The guards looked at her with a grin, and they said, Then take another drink. She went down into the swirling waters, saying, I am one of Christ's children. Let me go there. The cold waves dashed over her head. Friends and families watched along the shoreline as young Margaret died. Their empty bodies became products full of dirt and sand at the shore. You know, we hear a lot of stories about people like Margaret Wilson, Hudson Taylor, Francis Xavier. And there are a few unworthy responses that most of us have. One is an, it's an unsettling guiltiness. 
that can wash over us, right? Like, like if it were me, would I die for Jesus? Would I do that? Could I do that? Do I love Jesus enough to die for him? And the second is, well, they are the exception. They're different. Those are heroes of the faith, right? And they have a higher calling than I do. But the only response worthy of the testimonies of the cloud of witnesses is encouragement to run the same race. Because it truly is the same. I, I believe that's what they would tell you today if they were here, to run the same race. Margaret, with only 18 years of life, was not traumatized nor had a, a complete loss of hope. She only had encouragement to die the same as the older Margaret who passed moments before her. There was encouragement there, right, through that death. And us as viewers of countless heart-wrenching testimonies must do the same. You could be like me, right? Like you have, you have prayed long and hard for a revelation of a calling. But what is it other than this? John 15, 13 to 15 says this. There is no greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. I have called you friends. Do not be fooled that these old dead guys, these ODGs, were not naturally heroic, right? Like, and they were not just pressured by severe circumstances. Margaret does not refuse to say a mere simple sentence on a stake. So many more people, hundreds of people, swore this oath. God knows my heart. These are just words. This is just a sentence. Her parents did it. The, the oppressive government did not dictate whether or not that she would lose her life on that coast that day. Her life had passed long before her feet ever touched its sands. And it was not the murderous hatred and fear of the Pharisees that caused Jesus to walk the Calvary Road. This much has always been clear on the foundation of his calling to die for a friend Jesus had chosen long before circumstances had demanded. To die on the cross for us. In every moment, we were at the forefront. We witnessed Jesus saying things like, like, it's not my time. We're declaring and making the statement that he must die. And the same is true for us. We are in the same boat. Our lives are culminating in the same grand yet simple thing, to die for a friend. That is my calling, and that is yours. John 15, 13 to, uh, 15, 13 to 15. There is no greater love than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. It is inheritance to die for a friend. Whether that might mean passing quickly and triumphantly as a martyr, or a life completely exhausted and entirely spent on behalf of Jesus as we skid our way into heaven, into heaven's gates, beaten and battered. Jesus could not clearly pass his baton but through his friend Peter. Ryan describes, and he described it very beautifully last week, that Peter contends openly and ignorantly for the very freedom that was about to be won through the resurrection. John 13, 38, then Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, 
Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we learned that we learned that from Ryan last week. And then a few days later, though, Jesus asks three times if Peter loved him. It is the fulfillment of his promise, the inheritance of his people, to be able to truly answer yes to that gruesome question, will you really lay down your life for me? Yes. Oswald Chambers says, God engineers circumstances to see what we do. Will we be the children of our Father in heaven? Or will we go back again to the meaner, common sense attitude? Will we stake all and stand true to him? Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The crown of life means I shall see that my Lord has got the victory after all, even in me. It's this life, faithful unto death, dying for a friend, living a life full of sacrifices day by day, seeking to fulfill the hunger to truly know God, to seek that love and to understand it. We ought to be so in love with Christ that we look mad, right? That people would point at us and say, look at those Christians. They're madly in love with Jesus. They're madly in love with Christ. This is the difference. This is the change. And this is the conclusion of life. Are we in love with Jesus? The friend who is intensely, madly, and righteously in love with us back. Do we share this love with our Creator? Francis Xavier, Hudson Taylor, Margaret Wilson, Raven Hill, Tozer, Lewis, Moody, Watson, Bonhoeffer, and whoever else you need to list. The only difference between the life that they lived and the life that we now live is that we believe there's a difference. They look among the dead and see the life of the same call and the same love towards a friend. For some of us tonight, the hard part is understanding this love, right? A different love. How do we love better? How do I measure my love? What does it look like to love Jesus enough to, to willfully, willfully die like that and to be tortured? Dick Rogden says it like this. A Godward direction in life depends on the right perspective. You see, the issue is not really how much do I love Jesus, but how much he loves me. First John 4.10, in this love, not that we loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in this we get to see that it is difficult to look at love, right? And to look at what we can do but it is different whenever we recognize the love that we received first. The gift in it. And hopefully it's enough to humble us, right? And the band can go ahead and come back up. So, in this summer series, we will view many different walks of life from many different people, many different times and ages and genders, 
But we will always notice one thing. The love they share with Christ. They were devoted to being the bride of Christ. They understood things for sure. Yeah, they were smart. They had knowledge. But that wasn't their strong suit. It wasn't about the knowledge. It wasn't about the information. They had the same thing that you have tonight. The same opportunity that you have tonight. And that is to commune with Jesus Christ. Your, your Lord. Your Savior. And your friend. The whole point of tonight is not that there's some catchy phrase. There's, there's nothing, there's no three-step points. This isn't something that I can tell you to go and do this, but I just wanted to make it more tangible. The thing that we already know to be true. Something that we can maybe grasp a little bit better and tighter. My prayer is that a life of sacrifice filled more tangible. So tonight, as they, they play, um, we, the altars are open, your seat is open, and you can go move somewhere else, but tonight for us to just think about that and reflect on this, there's times where we did not love God at all. There's times where, where we've been confused and we don't understand or we have doubts or we're skeptical, but there's goodness in the way he loved us first. And there's grace and mercy in that. And that's the beauty of it. That's something that brings me to my knees and to tears. And that's how you begin to take these, these steps in this journey and the walk that all these other people get to walk. Is that they just recognized that they were sinners and lost. And they did not love Jesus the way he, should, he ought to be. So I'll pray, and then we can spend time at the altar or 